You're listening to Comedy Central. June 6, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. show. James Corden is here, everybody! So exciting! Yeah, we, we were gonna do carpool karaoke, but it turns out that show doesn't work in New York. Yeah, the traffic is just crazy. We're sitting in the car like, we belong... Get out of the way, asshole! Who drives a Bugatti in New York? Together! Also on tonight's show, D-Day is happening all over again. Trump's tweets are back with a bang and the new superstar of the Democratic race. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Today marked the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the day when the Allies sent a bunch of dick pics to the Nazis. (laughs) It was also the day when thousands of Allied soldiers bravely stormed the beaches of Normandy to rescue Matt Damon. And after everything they went through, he still went and got his ass stranded on Mars. Get it together, Matt! (laughs) Now, everyone has a different way of commemorating D-Day, but one veteran did it in style. A D-Day veteran returned to the skies to parachute again into the same landing zone that he did 75 years ago. This is an amazing story. He is 97-year-old Tom Rice. There's Mr. Rice. He was a veteran of the 101st Airborne. He made the jump once again outside Carrotton, France. It was a vicious battle for Carrotton. This time it was a tandem jump, and no one was shooting at him, fortunately. Wow. (laughs) Wow, 97 years old, and he jumped out of a plane again. Yeah, that's amazing. That's what that is. Huh? And honestly, honestly, I don't know what's scarier. Parachuting into Nazi territory on the real D-Day or being the jump expert today who's responsible for not hurting a 97-year-old veteran. Because if that landing goes wrong, the veteran's gonna be mad. He's gonna be like, I survived Hitler, but it looks like Butterfinger's Barry over here finished the job. Who needs Nazis when you got numbskulls? (laughs) By the way, that wasn't actually a commemorative jump. Those two guys were just flying to France on Spirit Airlines. (laughs) Spirit Airlines. You know what? Just let me out here. But uh, for real, though, thank you so much to all of the brave World War II veterans. You made enormous sacrifices uh, to defeat some very fine people on both sides. <laughs> all right, let's move on. In technology news, the fight against climate change is one that the te- tech sector is trying to tackle head on. And now they just got joined by a really powerful face. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr., uh, he plays a genius in the Iron Man movies, Tony Stark, the industrialist. Uh, at a tech conference uh, put together by Amazon, he took the stage, said, look, I'm not a genius, I didn't even graduate from <laughs> high school, but I recently met with some geniuses and they told me that we could significantly or completely clean up the environmental problems on this planet with, drum roll, what? robots and nanotechnology. Okay. So we started an organization called the Footprint Coalition, which is going to make this idea a reality. Between robotics and nanotechnology, we could probably clean up the planet significantly, if not entirely within a decade. Okay, that sounds amazing. And I think what makes it extra cool is who's saying it. 
is Tony Stark. Yeah. yeah, it almost feels like Robert has played Iron Man for so long that now he's just living it. Yeah. Which makes sense. If you play a character for over a decade, surely you're gonna become a little bit like them, you know? And this probably also explains why I keep seeing Mark Ruffalo running around the streets with no shirt on. He's just like, yeah, this is me. Plus, I ran into that tree who plays Groot the other day, and he refused to break character. <laughs> also, I was on a lot of drugs. But you know what, trust me, I, I, I'll tell you guys now, I know what it's like to get stuck in a character that you play. The other day, after taping The Daily Show, I was still talking in a South African accent for hours. <laughs> hours. All right, and finally, moving on to the world of retail, Walmart. It's like Amazon, except you deliver yourself to the store. <laughs> Recently, America's largest private employer got a visit from America's loudest employee. Bernie Sanders made headlines today when he appeared at Walmart's shareholder meeting and accused the company of paying its employees what he called starvation wages. Despite the incredible wealth of its owner, Walmart pays many of its employees starvation wages. Frankly, the American people are sick and tired of subsidizing the greed of some of the largest and most profitable corporations in this country. Yeah, Bernie Sanders. Wow! This man does not mess around. He showed up to question Walmart face to face. Although it is a little selfish for Bernie to ask for higher wages since he works part-time there as a greeter. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, on the weekends, like, America needs a revolution, and if you need Pepto, it's in aisle 12 next to the paper towels. <laughs> but you know what? All joking aside, this is what I love about Bernie Sanders. He doesn't just shout about policy from Washington, about what needs to change. He goes to the action. He goes to the Walmart meeting. That's blazing. Like, if Bernie was a Game of Thrones fan, he wouldn't be complaining online about the ending like everyone else. <laughs> He'd be going to Winterfell. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, this storyline makes no sense. I should be the queen of the North. <laughs> All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. <laughs> so, we're now just 515 days away from the 2020 presidential election, <laughs> which is barely enough time to cook a 30-minute meal 25,000 times. And right now, the Democratic primary has 24 candidates, which is insane. Look at all those faces, huh? Look at all of those faces. And one of those candidates is having a big moment right now. Elizabeth Warren's popularity is gaining in the polls nationally. The Massachusetts senator is now sitting third in the crowded Democratic primary field, trailing former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren got one of the biggest applauses and one of the biggest receptions from the California State Democratic Convention. They are telling you they will not fight for you. Not me. I'm here to fight. That's right, Elizabeth Warren has surged into third place in the crowded Democratic field. So right now it goes 76-year-old Biden, then 77-year-old Bernie, and then 69-year-old Warren. Like, this doesn't look like a group of presidential frontrunners. It looks like the cast of a Morgan Freeman movie about old people going on one last heist. <laughs> this is it, people. We're doing it. <laughs> and by the way, this is something you would never see in Africa, all right? No one is becoming president at the age of 70. When you're planning on running a country for 40 years, that's too old, my friend. <laughs> Just too old. <laughs> and for a long time, for a long time, I like how you got it in a wave. That was interesting. <laughs> you guys got it, and then you were like, wait a minute. 
Now, for a long time, the thing most people have focused on when it comes to Elizabeth Warren has been the controversy about her claiming Native American heritage. But the fact that Warren is one one-thousandth Native American <laughs> is only one one-thousandth of her story. And since she's now in the top three Democrats, we thought we'd learn more about her story in our recurring segment, Getting to Know Them. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. You might think of her as part of the coastal elites. You know, being a senator from Massachusetts and owning her very own eyeglasses, so fancy. <laughs> but you may be surprised to find out she came from very humble roots. Warren was born in small town Oklahoma in 1949. Donald Herring, her father, was a janitor. Her mother, Pauline, a stay-at-home mom. She taught special needs children in the 1970s before eventually becoming a law professor, most recently at Harvard Law School. Warren, perhaps unsurprisingly, didn't follow the traditional norms when she decided Bruce Mann, a professor of law at Harvard, was the one. She asked him to marry her. I still remember uh, the first time I really noticed him, he had on shorts, great legs. Jeez, Warren, keep it in your pants. I mean, really? I have a hard time believing that this guy's legs were so amazing that she did, wow, oh, okay. Oh, damn, I take it back. Those are great legs. You get it, girl. Also, it was pretty progressive for a woman in the 70s to be the one to propose to a man. Yeah. In fact, for all those ladies out there whose boyfriends are taking too long, yeah, you know what to do, yeah. You know what to do. Go ask Elizabeth Warren's husband to marry you. Yeah. <laughs> we were on the same page, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Elizabeth Warren wasn't just asking guys with great legs to marry her. No, while she taught at Harvard, she became one of the country's top experts on bankruptcy. And not in the Donald Trump kind of way. No, she knew the law so well that she would often be called to testify in front of Congress. And one of those hearings from nearly 15 years ago is pretty wild to watch now. Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren facing off more than a decade ago over a Biden-backed bill, making it more difficult for people to file for bankruptcy. They have squeezed enough out of these families in interest and fees and payments that Maybe never Maybe we should talk about usury principle. rates then. Maybe that's what Senator, we should be talking about, not bankruptcy. I'll be the first. Invite me. No, I, I know you will, but let's call a spade a spade. Senator, if you're not going to fix that problem, you can't take away the last shred of protection for I these got families. I okay. Uh, you're a very good, professor. <laughs> I want to kill you right now. <laughs> that's what that smile was. But you see that? That's one of the reasons people like Elizabeth Warren so much. Because she's been fighting against the predatory practices of banks and credit card companies. And this was long before it was cool. Right? Unlike Joe Biden, who once upon a time was fighting for credit card companies, which has never been cool, like Crocs or taking your cousin to prom. <laughs> And because of her efforts to take on corporate America, Warren became such a popular figure on the left that when she proposed creating a new federal agency to protect consumers, President Obama wanted her to lead it. But the GOP had other ideas. The CFPB is the brainchild of former Harvard law professor Elizabeth Warren. She first proposed creating the agency in 2007 as a way to better regulate mortgages, student loans, and other financial products. She was President Obama's pick to run the CFPB, but Republican senators on Capitol Hill refused to even consider confirming her. We're pretty unenthusiastic about the possibility of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, we're pretty unenthusiastic, frankly, about this new agency. <laughs> 
Why am I not surprised? Mitch McConnell is unenthusiastic about everything. Jesus Christ could return to Earth and McConnell will be like, my, why is it such a big deal? I mean, I died four decades ago. You don't see me bragging. I feel like Mitch McConnell is so low energy that if he did cocaine, it would just ramp him up to normal. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, let me get a bump of that. All right, guys, let's start this meeting. So it turns out, back in the day, Elizabeth Warren was Mitch McBlocked, right? And never got to run the CFPB. But the move may have backfired because a year later, she ran for Senate and became McConnell's co-worker. And from there, her popularity just kept on rising. The new senator shaking up the Democratic Party. Elizabeth Warren's tough take on Wall Street has made her a folk hero on the left. Wherever she goes in the country, she brings giant crowds to their feet. A U.S. senator for only a year, she's now making an even bigger splash. A draft movement is already underway. An open letter from more than 300 former Obama campaign staffers urging Elizabeth Warren to run for president. Warren was adamant she is not getting in the game. There's no way you're gonna run in 2016. I'm not running for president. You can ask it lots of different ways. Wow, times have really changed in four years, huh? Back then, Democrats were refusing to run for president even when they had a ton of support. Now, if one person is nice to them on the streets, Democrats are like, the people have spoken! I must run for president! Uh, actually, I was just saying nice shoes, and I'll use these shoes to walk straight into the White House! So Elizabeth Warren turned down the chance to run for president in 2016, a year many of you may have blocked from your memory. But now, <laughs> she's making waves in the 2020 race. And incredibly, she's managed to stand out in this crowded field thanks to her unique strategy of having a plan. 2020 presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, the senator, is making a mark on this race with these six words. I've got a plan for that. I got a plan. I have got plans. I got a plan. Senator Elizabeth Warren rolls out a sweeping plan that would wipe out student debt for millions of Americans. A detailed plan to invest $2 trillion over 10 years in green manufacturing, research, and trade. Breaking up Amazon, Google, and other big tech giants. Focusing her first policy plan as a 2020 candidate on creating a wealth tax. If we put that two-cent wealth tax in place on the 75,000 largest fortunes in this country, two cents, we can do universal childcare for every baby zero to five, universal pre-K, universal college, and knock back the student loan debt burden for 95% of our students and still have nearly a trillion dollars left over. Damn. Damn. Elizabeth Warren has some really detailed, well-thought-out plans, which is great if she becomes president. The only downside is that's gonna be one giant-ass hat. Yeah, <laughs> can't run with that. It's gonna f up people's necks. <laughs> Luckily, free healthcare, so it works. So that's Elizabeth Warren, third place in the race, lots of detailed ideas and a long history to back them up. And look, we still have a long way to go until the primaries, but for right now, it seems that much like her husband, this campaign has legs. <laughs> we'll be right back.
it's no secret that President Trump loves Twitter, right? <laughs> it's the only love affair he's had that didn't end in a hush money payment. In fact, Trump loves Twitter so much, he actually based his hairstyle on the Twitter bird, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. In fact, Twitter's so important to him that even during his state visit to the UK, he made time to tweet about the important things happening back home. Overnight, the president indulged in a memorable, long, some might say inevitable, social media tirade, half a dozen pent-up attacks on, and we're quoting here, Sleepy Joe Biden, crying Chuck Schumer, and this one, washed-up psycho Bette Midler, the actress. Okay. I know this isn't the point, but washed-up psycho makes it sound like she used to be successful at being a psycho. <laughs> and now her psycho agent won't return her calls. <laughs> Grandma. And look, I, I know we've all gotten used to this from Donald Trump, but I just want to take a moment to remind people that it's not normal for the president of the United States to be attacking individual Americans. Abraham Lincoln wasn't running around like, four score and seven years ago, Bob was a douchebag. <laughs> and he'll still be one in another four score and seven years. Kill yourself, Bob. <laughs> But I guess this is why Trump loves Twitter, right? He gets to be as outrageous and un unfiltered as he wants, and, and people take notice. Although lately, they seem to be taking a little less notice. According to new reporting from Axios, President Trump's tweets just aren't packing the same punch anymore, with interaction falling dramatically in recent months despite a significant uptick in use. The interactions with his tweets, in other words, the number of times someone retweets a tweet or likes a tweet has been dropping. So his tweets are having a bit less impact. That's right. Donald Trump's engagement on Twitter is down. And I think I know why he's struggling. He's tweeted so much crazy stuff that we've built up a tolerance. Yeah. Two years ago, Trump would call Kim Jong-un little rocket man and we'd start preparing for World War III. Now he could tweet that the U.S. is actually invading Canada and we'd be like, wow. <laughs> Can't believe he spelled Canada correctly. <laughs> He's really maturing. <laughs> but here's my theory. Maybe Trump's been working so hard on making America great again that he hasn't had time to make his Twitter great again. <laughs> and here at The Daily Show, we can't allow that. <laughs> Which is why we wanna help him remember how amazing his Twitter can be. So, uh, if I could address the president directly for a second, I'll be back. <laughs> Hi, Donald. <laughs> we don't talk anymore. <laughs> how are the kids? Disappointments? Anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to extend an invitation to help you get your Twitter groove back. The Daily Show is bringing The Daily Show Presents the Donald J. Trump Presidential Twitter Library to Washington, D.C where everyone can visit and relive all of your greatest works. It's an interactive experience where visitors can bask in your collected wisdom, commemorate your deleted tweets, and get a selfie with Kofifi. <laughs> they can even sit on your golden throne to simulate the true presidential tweeting experience. The library will be free and open to the public next weekend, June 14th through 16th, and the best part is, it's right around the corner from the White House. So, Mr. President, why not take a break from your empty schedule and stop by? We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is an Emmy and Tony Award-winning actor, writer, producer, and host of CBS's The Late Late Show. This Sunday, 
he will host the Tony Awards for the second time. James Corden! Beyond excited to have you here because, like, you have come in and genuinely changed in many ways the people perceive not just late night but television. Because I remember when you started on the show, everyone was like, oh, who's this guy? He's starting at, like, 12.37 at night and what's this thing gonna be? And overnight, you took what was once considered a fringe time slot and turned it into the biggest explosion thanks to your ideas, including carpool karaoke. Have, like... (laughs) Yeah. Like... Has, has, has that changed the way you see the medium as a whole? Uh, I don't think so. I think we always thought that's what we were, we were gonna do oh, when really? we were... We were gonna try to, you know? We didn't know that it, we would, it would happen. We had no idea that it would or could happen as quickly as it did. Right. But, but our... I mean, essentially, my, my uh, ego won't allow me <laughs> to recognize that I'm making a, a show that airs at 12.37 at night. Right. I, if I think about that too long, I'll just really get depressed. <laughs> so we were like, well, there's nothing we can do about that. So we go, hang on, wait, the internet, we'll use that. Right, right. And, and so we only really think of our show as not really being in a, a time stop. We think of it as, well, it launches at that time and people can find it whenever they want to, whether that's years down the line right. or days or the next morning on their journey to work, lunch break, whenever. It's the kind of wonderful thing about making shows like this right now in this particular time. Definitely, definitely. and and here's the thing, it's not just about uh, time, I think it's also about place. You know, your show was one of the first that really blew up on an international level the same way. Everywhere you went, people were talking about carpool karaoke, they had the sense of what, you know, a rap battle was, and the the, the whole vibe had changed. When When you were making carpool karaoke, though, a lot of people don't know this, you guys struggled to get people on that show. Oh, we couldn't get anybody. Yeah, we couldn't get... I mean, honestly... Because now everyone's like, James, when am I coming on your show? Yeah, it's kind of lovely, but we couldn't... I mean, honestly, we... I really, I really always believed in the idea. Yes. I always thought, oh, this is a, I think this is a good idea. Yes. But there's, um, there's quite an interesting game actually you can play with the audience. If everybody in the audience, if everybody now, just in your own mind, don't say it out loud, just, and you do it, Trevor, just think, okay. of, a, think of a recording artist, a living recording artist. Has everybody got one? Yes. They said no. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's not a lie, it's the true, absolute truth. And so then we, we, and it was just a chance meeting with Mariah Carey's publicist and she was about to put some new dates on yes, in Vegas. Yes. And, and we, I showed her a clip of me doing it in a sketch with George Michael that I'd done at home for, a, for right, Comic Relief. Right, right. And, um, and she, she loved George Michael and Mariah Carey was like, if it's good enough for George, it's good enough for me. And, and that was it, and, and nobody thought that it would ever become the thing that it's kind of become, but it's kind of, it, it's it, crazy. It really is amazing. I mean, it's gone from just being musicians to politicians. I mean, Michelle Obama has done it, you know. Yeah. You, you, um, you've been in a car, I mean, everybody from, look, look at this list, Paul McCartney, you know, you, you've had Tom Hanks on the show, you've had everyone, it's become this thing that is larger than life. The next step you do realize is you and the Pope in the Pope-mobile. <laughs> oh, man. And you just, can, you can only I sing the one song. I would absolutely love it. My man, you have to do it. it. If he's watching, and I think he is. (laughs) Um, 
And if he's not watching this, he'll be watching the Tonys on Sunday. So we'll talk, we'll, we'll really get, I would love nothing more than to do it with the I, Pope. I, that, that's, that's something that I've loved about your show is that it really is an expression of all of your talents, right? So a lot of people were surprised. I remember the, like the first few times Carpool Karaoke really blew up, people were like, well, this James Corden guy can almost sing. And it's like, no, no, he can really sing. Which has shocked people, because there's some artists who've come in and been like, I'm gonna sing with this funny guy. And they're like, wait, wait, he's hitting the notes. <laughs> you sing better than some people, and then you have to d- dial it down. I won't say who, but you do. <laughs> and that's why you have won Tony Awards, because you are an actor. Yes, we know you as a host, but you're an actor, you're a performer, and you've loved theater your whole life. Yeah, I mean, I'd never really hosted... Uh, I used to host a, a show back in the UK, which, which you came yeah. on, actually. Uh, but that was my only real time hosting anything. But really what I'd ever do is be in plays or, or I, would, I would write, you know, uh, sitcoms and things in the UK. I never thought that I would... It never even entered my, my brain. In the same way that I don't think it entered no, yours in no. many ways. You host think, a late-night oh, show I would in America, host no. a, a daily show in America. It, it, it feels too far away. It feels right. too far... It's out of reach somehow, you know? And I think we both had that feeling mm-hmm. when, because we essentially got announced at, at basically the same time, right? right? And, and it and, was both, who the hell are these guys? Yeah. Yes, I remember this. And, um, and we both had to really deal with that in our own <laughs> way. Yes, definitely. But, um, but I, it, yeah, I, 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 don't, I would love to go back and, and act at some point and go and do a, a play again. I, every time I come here to New York and I, you know, I try and go to the theater as much as I can, I'm gonna go tonight and I, and I miss it. I miss it um, hugely, but at the same time, I, I, I feel in no place where I, I want to stop this kind of glorious journey that I'm on at the minute. Yeah. I, I love it. I love the, the, I don't know what I've done to sort of deserve such memories. Do you know what I mean? That's, right, that's right. how it feels every day, really. That's beautiful, you know? man. But the Tonys is like an expression of a world that you've adored for a long time. This is your second time hosting. Yeah. What's impressive is that you're doing the Tonys and you've done the Grammys. It feels like you have more fun at the Tonys. The Grammys are fun, but it feels like you have more fun at the Tonys. Oh, yeah. What makes them special? Well, everybody wants to be there. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the first real big difference between the Grammys and the Tonys, right. is everybody wants to be there and they're thrilled that they're all doing this. Yes. No one's going, I didn't f-ing win, what, you know? Um, so it's, it's a very, very supportive community. That entire community of Broadway, they are, th- these are a load of people who are squeezed into 12 blocks. Yes. Back-to-back theatres and they know each other and they're, friends, and these are people who eight times a week, like, look, you think you work hard, I think I work hard, but like, when you're doing a play or a musical eight times a week with one day off, that is absolute graft. And the reason I want to host the Tonys and the reason I want to really try and make it the best show I can is I believe that per square meter, there is no room on earth that holds as many talented people as that room does. And it's a show where, and I think you just want to celebrate these people who are so gifted, they are so talented, that they put on a show every day. Right. And in a world where we are living increasingly on our phones and uh, tablets, iPads, all those things, we are all searching for a live collective experience, an experience to be together. And these are the people that provide that. So we're really gonna try and make the best and biggest show we can. I mean, it's terrifying. I've had real moments this week where I thought, oh, I should have just left it at the one I did with Hamilton. And that was a real (laughs) success. You know, I should have just gone out there, but I I really hope we're gonna do it as, we're certainly gonna stop at nothing to make it a celebration of a group of people that I think at the absolute minimum 
deserve to be celebrated on television at least once right. a year. I'll tell you, know? you this, I've never seen James Corden not do something at 110%, so it's gonna rock, man. We'll see I you at the show. I hope so, thanks. Thank you for being on the show, my friend. The Late Late Show airs weeknights on CBS, and the Tony Awards will be live on CBS June 9th at 8 p.m. James Corden, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.